Shalom, and I hope all is well. My name is Yitzchak Schiffman. I love sharing Torah classes, and thank you for listening to this episode. Feel free to follow and to share with others so they too can enjoy the Torah classes on this podcast. Now, on to the episode. Okay, let's get started. Today's daf, Maseches Gittin, is daf nun Aleph. We're, we left off yesterday at the bottom of Nunamud Bays, and uh, we're going to have two sections in today's daf. The first section is going to be a conclusion of yesterday's discussion regarding why you can't collect for Achilas Peros, which I'll explain momentarily, from the Shu'abadim. We gave one reason yesterday, Ula in the name of Rish Lakish. We'll give a second one today, and then we'll analyze those opinions. And then the second is going to be the discussion surrounding Meshiv Aveda not swearing. So let's just quickly recap what we did yesterday, the last piece. Nunamud Bey is the bottom. We quoted the part of the Mishnah that said, it was the fourth clause of the Mishnah, We said the halach is as follows. If I would go and steal a field from you, I stole a field from you, and then I sold that field off to an unsuspecting individual who purchased it from me, not realizing it was stolen. That fellow puts... $50,000 into the field, whatever it is. He puts a certain amount of money into the field and it helps improve the quality of the field as well as it produces fruits. And then you show up and you say, hey, that's my field, which it is. It is your field. You're allowed to take that field back and you could pay him a very base amount to take it back. But then that nigzal, the one who, the one who, excuse me, that uh, lokeach, that lokeach, the purchaser, comes back to me, the uh, goslin. Right. Meaning in this case, he comes back to me, the Goslin, and I sold, and the one who sold it to him, and he is going to claim from me the monies that he put into the field additionally. Meaning, he's going to claim from me whatever it is that he invested extra on top of purchase price into the field. Now, whatever he bought the field for, I have to pay him back for, and that I could pay back from the Chassim Mishu'abadim which would mean properties that I'd have sold, I would have sold off afterwards. Those are in the Chassim Shu'abadim. He could claim from those encumbered properties, no problem. But whatever monies he invested into the field on top of that, and the fruits that it produced and all of that, he can only claim from my B'nei and my available monies, not from the Chassim Shu'abadim, not from properties that I'd have sold off already. If he's getting from you... Yeah, he has to come back to me. It goes back to you, gets the, his purchase price... Plus, plus his investment investments. So the, the, the then why the original owner has to give him anything? Base. You just yeah. So the the, the Mepharshim talk about it very briefly. I didn't look too much into it. it. Sounds like they just have to. He just has to pay like a baseline value. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I agree with He's you. He's getting reimbursed. I'm with the, you. I'm with castle. you. Right, right, right. So that's not the point here, though. For let's both just get the point. The purchase and the and the investment. So let's just get the point here. Is yeah. is in regards to the investments. Right. He only could take from B'nei Chorin, not from Mishua Abadim. It's not properties that I'd have sold off already. You wouldn't yeah. be allowed to take that from. Right. So the Lord said, why? Yeah. So yesterday we had Ula in the name of Rish Lakish. And Ula explained the reason is because it wasn't written down. When you write down a shtar, it creates a call. It creates a rumor. People know about uh, responsibilities or liens that occur in your, in your uh, life. Right. If it's not written down, they don't they know. know so if they don't know about it, you can't claim from... Other people, from their, from the people he sold to, rather you can only claim for him directly. Now, today we have a second sheet, which is Rabbi Hanina, and then w- with this we're going to analyze him as well. So let's see, it's the last line on the page. Rabbi Hanina Omar, a second last line. 
Rabbi Hanina Amr Rabbi Hanina says like this, Lafisha in Kitsuvin. He says that the reason that you can't claim the again, we're talking about the fellow I sold the property to, the stolen property that he invested in, because it's not set. Meaning, if it was a set value, if there was a set determined number, value, something of that nature, he would be able to come claim from my Meshua Abadim, things that I sold off. But since it was something that's not set, when it comes to improvements, it could improve at $50, it could improve at $50,000. It's something that's completely not set, therefore you can't claim from my Meshua Abadim, only from my Bnei Chorin. So the Gemara wonders, Yibaylu, this is the Shaila. In order to collect from Mishra Abadim, does Rabbi Hanina require that A, it's a set value, and B as well, that it was written down in a star? Turning to Nanalaf Madalaf. Or is it that Rabbi Hanina just says it has to be a set value, even if it was a milval pet, even if it was an oral loan without a document, it wasn't written, you'd still be allowed to collect from, from Mishra Abadim. So Tashma, the Gemara says, bring a proof. Now we have we have uh, the following halacha, the itmar. Halacha is as follows. If when a father passes away, there's a certain way they meet out the remaining estate. So there's Yerusha. So the sons generally inherit, actually this week's parish, we have the story of the Benoslaf, but it's Mamash Nogea here. The daughters will inherit if there's no sons, but if there is a son, so then the son will inherit. Now that doesn't mean the girls aren't entitled to anything. They certainly are. They get Mizonos, they get fed. And they also get an, what's called an Iser Nechassim. Iser Nechassim is a tenth of the property, which they receive as a dowry, as a gift, in order that they should be married with what they need. When they get married, Rashi says, or when they become a Bogaris. Now the story is as follows. Tashma, let's bring a proof from the Brisa. If Rabbi Hanina requires both conditions to collect from Meshua Abadim, or only Kitsuvin. Somebody passed away. He left over two daughters and a son. Now the first daughter went and took the tenth of the property that she was due for her dowry. So she became Bogaris, she married, whatever it is. Now, before the second girl could take her Easter Nechassim, tenth of the property, the son passed away. Now what's the difference now if the son passes away? Who inherits the son? The daughters. But now that the daughters are inheriting the son, one could argue and say, which is Rabbi Yochanan's position, now that they're both going to split the remaining property 50-50, the second daughter will not take her Easter Nechassim. She'll just take 50% of the remaining property as Yerusha. So that's Rabbi Yochanan's opinion. I'm Rabbi Yochanan. Shnia Vitra. Let me just finish. Rabbi Yochanan says the second daughter forfeits her 10%, meaning they'll just split it up 50-50 now, but she doesn't get the 10% on top like the first daughter got. Son had children already. That would be a different story. Right. You're right. You're right. And on that, Rabbi Hanina commented against Rabbi Yochan and he said, first of all, it makes sense certainly that the second girl should first take 10% right. and then 50% on top of it. Because Gedolamizu Amru, because even a greater ruling about what the girls could receive, we've taught. is. When it comes to this Parnasa, Parnasa is the Easter Nechassim, the 10% of property the girls get from the estate for their dowry, you could take that away from Mishua Abadim. Means even if the son had sold off properties um, during, a, after the father had passed away, they would be able to 
extract it from the buyers for their dowry, even though they can't do that for Mizonos. We learned Mizonos, you're not allowed to do that. So you see clearly for Parnassa, even if it was sold off and the son isn't dead, they would be able to extract from his, uh, the people he sold to. And you're saying because he passed away, she forfeits her Isr Nechassim, certainly she should not forfeit the 10%. Now that's Rabbi Hanina's own words. So the Gemara says, what do you see? This 10% is something that's set. We know what 10%, 10% is 10%. That's a set amount. But it is not written down in a document. And Yisir Chanina is saying that the daughters would be able to extract that from the buyers. So if the daughters can extract from the buyers, even though it's not written down because it's set, See, we've resolved our shaila, says the Gemara. You see from here clearly that Rabbi Hanina's position is in order to extract from Yeshua Abadim, it just has to be said, it doesn't have to be written down. The Gemara refutes this and says, this is like it's written down. Why? Shani Parnasa, the Isr Nechassim is different, even the Isla Kala, since there is a rumor. We know when the father passes away, the daughters get 10%. The whole point of writing it down in a document creates a rumor. It creates the knowledge in the town that she, they are the, the uh, people are responsible. There's a lien against this property. So the point is, with the daughters, it's the same thing because everyone knows when the father passes away that there's a responsibility that they get ten percent. So come on, get dummy. It's as if it's written down. So you haven't resolved your question because it could be requires both to extract the mishua abadim, and this is like it's written down, even though it's not. Now what the Gemara does is the Gemara is going to pose a question against Ula's opinion that in order to extract a Mishu Abadim, it has to be written down. And then it'll ask another question against both opinions. So it's a little bit tangential in a sense, but that's going to be the next step. So Masav Rav Hamnuna Bar Manoach. Rav Hamnuna Bar Manoach has the question from the Gemara in Ksuvis. The Gemara in Ksuvis says as follows. So this, it, let's set up the scenario before we see the end of the story. A woman gets married to a man, and she already has a daughter. So it's, it's this man's stepdaughter. Before they get married, she makes the following stipulation with him. I'm marrying you on condition. You'll support my daughter for five years. Okay, with Mizonis, with food. You'll support my daughter for five years. Fine. She gets married, and then she gets divorced. Then she marries a second fellow, and she makes the same condition with that second fellow. Uh, There's not a nice word you could use for this lady, but I'm not going to use it in this context. She gets married to the second fellow. I'm marrying on condition. You'll support my daughter for five years with Mizonis. And then she gets divorced from the second fellow, or that she stay, stays married. It doesn't really make a difference, I guess. Um, yeah, meaning if she's married to the second fellow. It doesn't really make a difference. Uh, it may, maybe she did get divorced. I don't remember that part of the story. But either way, what happens now is as follows. There's two men that are responsible to give Mizonos for her daughter, which is one was the ex-stepdaughter and one was the stepdaughter. Fine. There's two men. You can't give twice Mizonos because the daughter doesn't need to eat twice. Yeah, well, she eats. So what happens is one of them will give Mizonos and one of them gives the equivalent value of the Mizonos just uh, check in the mail every month. It's nice. Okay. Now what happens if both of those men pass away? So both of those men pass away and now we have to figure out how does Mizonos work regarding the stepdaughter, meaning the one that they had made that condition with, as well as regarding their actual biological daughters. And what comes out here is a fascinating distinction. Mesu. If both of those fathers had passed away, their actual daughters would get fed Mizonos only from unencumbered properties. That's the rule. We said this is this is the Tikana Olam, is that generally Mizonos is not taken from Meshua Abadim because if it was, people wouldn't want to purchase properties from anyone that was married, that had kids, that had a wife, etc. So 
the daughters can only take from available properties of those fathers. Vihi, but the stepdaughter that this condition had been made with, she's allowed to collect from encumbered properties that he had sold off. Why? She's not coming only as a, she's a creditor. She's not coming only as a Mizonos, which is Takonas Ksuva. She's coming as a creditor. And a Balaschov or a Balchov could collect from Meshua Badim because of the condition the mother had made with these two men. And therefore, what ends up happening is that daughter can actually collect from Meshua Badim. Says the Gemara, but what do you see, Lachara? This is something that's set. There was a five year window made. So that's considered Kitsuvin, but it's not written down. So says the Gemara, you see Kasha against Ula. This seems to support the opinion of Rabbi Hanina that it only has to be set, not like Ula says that it has to be written down in order to collect from Mishua Badim. So Ula answers, Hachav Mayaskina, what are we talking about? is that they made some sort of a formal acquisition. So Rashi explains that means that the mother made from these men a formal acquisition requiring them to pay these mizonos for these five years. And says Rashi, when they would do a formal acquisition, they would also write it down in a star. So therefore it was written down, and that's why the daughter can continue to collect from Yeshua Badim. Yehachi, the Gemara says, if that's true, Banos Nami, why would you assume he only made an acquisition for his stepdaughter, not for maybe he made it for his own daughter too, and then they should also collect from Yeshua Badim. If there was a star, Gemara answers. He only made the transaction for the stepdaughter, not for his own daughters. Gemara says, "My Pasca, why would Chazal make that distinction? There must be a logical reason to make such a distinction." So the Gemara says, "Bast Ishto Dahavi Bishas Kenyan." Makes a svar like this. His stepdaughter was there at the time of the Kenyan, because the Gemara is assuming at this point, when the woman married him, the her daughter was in exist existence already. So Mahani la Kenyan, the Kenyan has an effect for her. Bita de Kenyan, but his actual daughter, we're assuming, was only born later. So therefore, Lo Mahani la Kenyan, the Kenyan wouldn't have been effective to create this requirement to even collect from Meshua Badim. So the Gemara says, but Mila asking, could it not be talking about a case to have Kenyan? His daughter could have been alive too. Maybe he had a daughter from previous marriage. Regardless, you could come up with a scenario. Sorry, the Gemara says, How could it have been? Maybe he married this woman. They had a kid together, so it's his kid. And then he remarried her. She happened to have a different kid from a different marriage, which is his stepdaughter. The point is, if you want to come up with a case, he could have his own daughter at the time too. And if they're making a Kenyan, why wouldn't it be impactful for his own daughters as well? El of the Gemara says another attempted answer. Bito de betenai based in ka'achla. Since his daughter is already allowed to eat mizonos if he passes away, based on Tanai Beisdin, meaning Beisdin set up as part of the Tanai Tanoim involved in the Ksuva, is that they would eat mizonos should the husband or father pass away. So lo mahani Kenyan. The Kenyan is not effective because there was already a prior condition that was made by Beisdin. His stepdaughter, there's no such Tanai. So mahani Kenyan, maybe then a Kenyan would be effective. So why would that be worse? Meaning if there was a more significant reason that she should continue to eat Mizonos based on a Tanai Beisdin that preceded, why would that make it worse for her that she can't collect from Meshua Badim and she could only collect from B'nai Chorin? So Elo the Gemara concludes as follows. When it comes to his daughter, since there is a ruling of Tanai Beisdin, which means Tanai Beisdin says that if the father passes away, surviving daughters are allowed to eat from the eat mizonos from his estate now that tonight is only made regarding uh, 
However, that makes a concern for us. What's the concern? He wants to fulfill that tonight. He wants to make sure his daughters are taken care of because there's such a condition as stated by Bezdin. Based on that, we're worried maybe he set aside something. He hid aside something for the Mizonis already. And therefore, for her to go claim, claim it from Yeshua Abaddon, that would actually be completely inappropriate because she's not deserving of anything yet, anything anymore, as he already set aside something for her. We're only concerned about that for his own daughter, where there was a Tanai Bezdin that preceded requiring him to give her Mizonos. However, regarding the condition he made with this woman's daughter, he's not going to put something aside. It was all based on his own doing. We're not worried he's going to put something aside. She could therefore claim from Meshua Abad. But we resolved the question, not a question against Ula. Let's move on to the next question. Now the Gemara, the way Rashi learns, is a question against both Ula and the Rihanina. This Brisa seems to state that the underlying reason is neither because it's written or because the, the, uh, amount of, the claiming amount is not set. So Tashma, the Gemara says, bring a proof. Raisa says like this, Amr Abinasan, Amasan, says, when is it true that you, the person who improved the field can't claim from the Meshuabadim of the Gazlan? That's only where the second individual who purchased was be, who purchased was before the improvements of the first one. The first one's the first person who purchased from the thief and improved the field. He's coming to claim for those improvements. So if the second person purchased before the first person improved the field, what's that? He sold twice. He sold two different fields. No, two different fields. Meaning, I had stolen that property. I sold it to the other fellow. Before he improved it, I sold you another property. So that means the improvements were after the right. selling of the, okay. of the second property. Okay. Uh, so there, the halacha would be is that he can't claim from Meshua Badim, and the logic in that is because he has no idea how much you have no idea to be careful because you don't know how much he improved that as the improvements didn't exist when you purchased the second right. property from me. But if the improvements preceded the second sale, meaning he improved the field and then I sold you a different property, it could be collected from Almost the Gemara says, you see, the only issue here is in terms of precedence. Even though it wasn't written down and it's not set, both issues were not met, and yet the Allah is going to be over here that that fellow would be able to claim from your property, which is Meshua Badim, as I sold it off to you, as long as you bought it after the, his field was improved. So says the Gemara, this is not like Ula, and this is not like Rabbi Hanina either. Answers the Gemara Tanoi. We have a Machlekes Tanoim here. We're going to show there's other Tanoim who do support the Shittas of Ula and uh, Rabbi Hanina. This is how Rashi learns. The Tanya, as the Brisa says, You can't claim from any of these types of payments from encumbered properties because of Tikkun Olam. And the Brisa says, Why? Because they're not written. This is clearly like Ulo's opinion. In order to claim from the Meshuabadim, it has to be written down. What's the Tikkun Olam? They're not set. Since they're not set, even if they're written, perhaps, it wouldn't be considered. Uh, it wouldn't be helpful and you wouldn't be allowed to claim from Meshua Badim. This is clearly like Rabbi Hanina's opinion. So he says, show two Tanoim that support the Amoroyim, even though there is a Bryce we quoted above that doesn't seem to support them. All right, let's move on. Final point of the day here. We said in the Mishnah, if somebody finds a lost object, he wouldn't swear when he returns it. So the case was, I found a lost object, I brought it to you. You said, wait a second, there was more when I lost it. 
So you must have stolen something. Now, really, that should be halacha might have mixed us a tiny yeshava. Is that when there's a, I, I, and, and I'm returning part of it. So I'm as if I'm admitting part of what you're claiming, and I should have to swear shvodaraisa. However, they said because of tikkun olam. If I know that when I return things, there's a chance that I'm going to have to start making shvuos, I'm going to refrain from returning things. So as a tikkun Chachamim said, you will not have to swear in such a situation. And Rabbi Yitzchak comes and says, it's not so simple. He actually makes a distinction in cases. Let's see. I'm Rabbi Yitzchak. So we're going to have three scenarios, Rabbi Yitzchak, now. Shnei So what happens is, a fellow finds a, a purse, and he returns it to the owner. The owner turns... And he says, there were two purses tied together that I had. And the returner says, I only found one. Okay, so what's the halacha? Nishba. In that case, the returner does have to swear, We'll see why momentarily. What if the fellow finds an ox and he returns it to the owner? And the owner turns around to the returner and says, there were two oxen, Shurin, who were tied together, Matzasali, that you found of mine. Omer, and the returner says, Lo No, there was only one. Okay, there was only one ox. Eino nishba. So he doesn't swear. Now, my time, what's the difference between these two cases? Because oxen can separate from each other. They are animate objects. Kisin, Purses, wallets, don't separate from each other. So the way Rashi explains this is as follows. In the first case, the owner is has a tainas bari. He has a certain claim. I know that there were two wallets there, and there's no logical reason that that shouldn't be as it is anymore. Where there's a tainas bari, where there's a, a certain claim, we don't apply the tikkun olam to remove the shvuas maidav mixas from someone returning an object. When there were oxen, it's only a tainas shema. I know that there were, but they could have separated. So that's only a it's, a, it's a potential claim. We don't know if it's true or not, because it may have separated. And there we would apply the principle of moda b'miktsas, of a meshiva veda, that there's no shvua. So therefore, in the case of oxen, the returner does not have to swear. Case number three. Okay, so he returns one ox now. And the owner turns around and says, there were two oxen tied together that you found. And the returner says, Matsasi, it's true. I did find two oxen. I already returned one of them. <coughs> so I'm returning one now, and I returned one or- originally. In this case, actually, he will, he will have to swear. Why will he have to swear? Because he's admitting that there were two. So he's validating the claim of the owner. And he's still saying, ah, but I returned one. There he has to swear to validate his claim that he's yeah. saying, I only, I already returned one. Now, the Gemara says this. It comes out clear according to Rabbi Yitzchak. If the owner has a claim, meaning the tovea here, the being owner's tovea something else, the claimant, he's saying that the claimant, the claimer, not the claimer, the claimer, the one who's claiming over here, the owner is saying, what? Claimant. claimant. He's saying, no, you owed me, I had, I had two, two purses here. Right. And no, the returner's saying, no, no, there was only one purse. So he says you have to swear. Why? Because he has a tainas bari. The claimant has a certain claim right. against the returner. 
So the Gemara wants to know, but what about the whole idea of Meshiva Veda? So the Gemara says, Rabbi Yitzchak, According to Rabbi Yitzchak, is there not a Tikkun Olam that if you find an object, you don't have to swear? How does he get away with not swearing? So the answer ultimately is going to be what I just said. It's a difference between Bari and Shema, but the Gemara brings us a Tana, as we're about to see, who illustrates this point. So turning to the Nun Aleph base. Who the Amrak Rabbi ben Yaakov? The Gemara answers, Rabbi Yitzchak holds like Rabbi Yitzchak ben Yaakov. And we're going to go through a scenario and have to explain it. At the end of it, we'll see how Rabbi Yitzchak agrees with Rabbi Yitzchak ben Yaakov that when there's a Tainas Bari, you could actually get away without swearing. Uh, you, you, you would still have to swear even though it was a returning uh, lost object type situation. Detanya. As the Brisa teaches us, Rabbi Yitzchak ben Yaakov Aymer. Yaakov says, Pa'amim, there are times, Sha'adam nishbal Tainas Atzmo, that a person will swear based on his own claim. What does it mean on his own claim? We're going to have to explain in a moment. Ketzav. How is this? Now let's learn Kipashtas. The simple way to learn is that somebody approaches these uh, children of a fellow who had passed away. Okay. And he yeah. says, your father has money by me, which means I owed your father money. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, Reuven approaches Yisomim and he says to them, I owed your father money. pras, But I paid half of it up already. Okay, so I paid up half of it, and I only owe the, the, your father, the you, because you're the estate, the other half. So Rabbi Yosemite Yaakov says, nishba, He will have to swear, meaning on the other half that he's claiming he already paid, that he only owes the other half. This is the scenario that a person will swear on his own claim. Why is it his own claim? Because the they kids had no idea. He's the one saying that I owed your father this and I paid half, so he has to swear based on the information that he's presenting. That's a Meshiva Veda. If he would have just been quiet, they would have never gotten their money. So he's returning something that theoretically is lost, and therefore he's exempt altogether. That's the end of the Machlokis, the Brisa. So now the Gemara analyzes. So, so before we understand exactly how Rabbi Yitzchak follows the opinion, sorry, Rashi explains over here already. The point is, is that we have to analyze Rabbi Yitzchak Yaakov, but Rashi explains that the reason Rabbi Yitzchak Yaakov holds this is because the, it's considered Tainas Bari. Now we're going to have to see how that works exactly, but Rabbi Yitzchak is going to hold like Rabbi Yitzchak Yaakov that where there's Tainas Bari, you don't apply the leniency to get away without swearing. So the Gemara says, wait a second, let's analyze this for a second. Does Rebbelezim Yaakov not hold to the principle that when you return a lost object, you're exempt? It means, why would the person who says, I, I owed the money and, I'm re- and I paid half already, be chayv in a shvua? So why is he not considered Meshavet and Pater? So Amarab Bitano Katan. Raf says the scenario is that the Yasam, the orphan, was a Katan, and he claimed against this fellow, You owed my father $100. The fellow turned back to the Yasam, and he said, It's true, but I paid back 50 So the Gemara says, If that's the case, Katan Midi Mashasha Ispe, does the claim of a Katan have any significance? We don't swear when it comes to the claims of a Kherishot of a Katan. So if that's true, this is not a Meshav Aveda situation. This is a total Meshav Aveda situation because the children had no idea. The time of the Katan has no impact. And therefore, Blasbiak should say, your Pater as well. So the Gemara says, my Katan, 
What does it mean, katan? It means gadol. It means the yasom was really a gadol. But why is he called a katan? Why is he called katan? Because regarding the transactions and the matters of his father, he's a katan. Why is he a katan? He, he doesn't know what happened to his father's transactions. He doesn't know if the father was owed money or anything of that nature. So therefore he's called a katan, but really it was a gadol. And the claim of a gadol does have power. Since the claim of a gadol has power, the Godel is saying, you owed my father $100. He's responding, I already paid back 50 Okay, but that's not a Meshav HaVeda anymore. That's why he has to swear, according to Rilaz ben Yaakov. So the Gemara says, Yahachi, if that's true, Tainas Atzmo. Rilaz ben Yaakov says, there are times you swear on your own claim. But that's not Tainas Atzmo. Tainas Acherem Hu. That's the claim from other people. The way you're coming out is, a Godel Yosem is claiming from him, and he's denying half of it. That's Tainas Acherem. That's not Tainas Atzmo. So the Gemara answers, Tainas Atzmo Acherem Vahidas Atzmo. No, what it means is it's the claim of others with the admittance of this fellow. So Gemara says, Every scenario is where someone else claims from you and then you admit to half and there you have to swear if Shwas might have been Mikzas. So according to Elizabeth Yaakov, then what's the Chiddush in this case? And according to the Chachamim, why would you be putter based on Shwas, uh, based on Meshav Aveda? So Ella the Gemara says, Hello, the Gemara says, rather, that the basis of the debate between Rabbi Yaakov and the Chachamim is in the Halacha of Rabbah. Now, we're about to show Rabbah, this famous Rabbah brought in other Masechtas also, but Metziah, other Masechtas, Bakama. <clears throat> the underlying understanding why the Torah says, when somebody admits the part of a claim, he has to swear a Shvodah But the way we're going now, Rashi explains, we're going to explain that really it was talking about a scenario where the katan claimed against this fellow, you owed my father a certain amount of money, and he denied uh, half of it. So Rashi explains, even though in this scenario it's the katan claiming, Machlekes here is going to be, do we look at the katan's claim because it's based on what was owed to his father, not what, not what, not what's owed to him, as significant in terms of swearing or not? Rebbe Lezben Yaakov is going to say that it is significant, and the uh, Chacham are going to say it's not. He doesn't have to, and uh, he doesn't have to swear. The point is, is that Rashi does answer the question. Is although he said that the taina of a katan is not significant, that's where he's claiming money that was owed to him directly. But but, but via his father, it'll be significant, um, be, according at least according to Rabbi Zman Yaakov, and there will be a shvua that's required. Now the Rabbanan are actually Rashi explains going to argue the opposite extreme. Even if the son was a gadol claiming money that was owed to his father, still there's not going to be the concept of a shvua. So we'll see now as we explain this. So let's explain the machlag based on the principle of Rabbah. Why did the Torah say that when somebody admits to part of a claim against him, he has to make a shvua daraisa? So he explains the underlying logic. Chazaka, because there's a Assumed status. A person doesn't have the gall to deny the claim in front of the one who lent him money. He doesn't have the chutzpah to do that. Now, really, if he wanted to get out of it, he should deny the entirety of the sum of money that uh, is being claimed from him. For the reason he's not doing that, means we have a chazako. We have an assumed status. It's human behavior. You're not going to deny in front of your creditor, in front of his face, the money that you owe him, you know, people don't have that level of chutzpah. Now, really, he should admit to the entirety of the matter. Now, the fact that he's not admitting to the entirety of the matter, 
That's not to say that he's chashadamamayna, that we're suspicious that he's not that he's uh, not going to be fair with monetary rulings, and therefore we shouldn't trust his shvua either, because really all he's doing is he's avoiding this fellow, he's pushing it off, and Savar, he thinks, I'm going to pay it up, certainly. When I have money, I'll pay it up. I don't want to admit now to the entirety of it, because I don't have the money to pay it up now, but he's not really suspected against uh, lying about money. He will pay it up eventually, and therefore his shvua could also be effective. Um, Rachmanus, the Torah tells you, Rami shvua iluya, put a shvua on him, in order to get him to admit. So we know the reality of it based on does he really owe the money or not. That's what the shvua is supposed to push him. If he doesn't want to swear, then he'll have to admit to it. Now, based on that understanding of the idea of Shmoidim mixes a tiny shava, Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov Sav, Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov Sav, the opinion, not only will a person not have the gall to outright lie in front of the actual creditor who lent him money, which would be the father in this case, but also in front of his son when his son is claiming money um, that was owed to his father. He's not going to have such a chutzpah. And since he's not going to have such a chutzpah, when he's admitting to half in this scenario, it's an ordinary case of uh, it's an ordinary case of Maida makes a tiny isha. We could apply the same principle where he would deny half of it in front of the father to when he would deny half of it in front of the son, and therefore he has to swear. Shua Maida makes a tiny Therefore, this is not a scenario of Meshiv Aveda because he's not going to lie. He's going to admit Lechaira if he needs to admit. The fact that he's denying half puts this into the category of Maida makes a tiny, and therefore he has to swear. That's the opinion of Rabbi Lezer ben Yaakov. Now, Rabbanan Savri, the Rabbanan hold differently. They say, It's true. This, cred, this debtor will not have the chutzpah to lie in front of the son, in front of the father, excuse me, in front of the original person who lent him money. And therefore, we'll put a shvu in such a scenario. Avil bivno, but regarding the son, Mayes, he would actually have the chutzpah to lie, and we can't assume that he's not going to be lying in this situation when the son claims the money that was owed to his father, even if the son is a guttle for that matter. Umideloi mayes, the fact that he was not mayes, meaning that he admitted to some of the money, because he certainly would have denied the entirety of it. The fact that he admitted to some of it, we don't look that as because he would just deny the entirety of it. There's no chazaka that he won't lie in this case. Rather, he's a meishiv aveda, and that's where we employ the rule, meishiv aveda doesn't have to swear, he gets off lenient without having to make a shvua. Now, based on this, we could say the following. So the Gemara concludes, Rabbi Yitzchak holds like Rabbi Lezben Yaakov. Rabbi Lezben Yaakov holds that when the son comes with the taina of his father, that might be owed my father money, that's considered a tainas bari. That's a certain claim. In such a scenario, since he has a certain claim, the halach is going to be that the one he's claiming against will have to swear. We don't employ the principle of Meshav Aveda being exempt. Similarly, Rabbi Yitzchak says, when the fellow says that there were two purses connected and you're claiming you only return one of them and the other one's not here, it's also a tightness bari, and you don't employ the principle of Meshiv Aveda being exempted from a shvua. Rather, it's Maida mixes a tiny shava, and that's why this fellow is going to have to swear in the first halacha of Rabbi Yitzchak on the previous Amr. Okay, we're stopping here at the bottom of Nun Aleph Mut Beis. Hashem will pick up tomorrow with Nun Beis. Everybody have a wonderful day.